This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled A Song for Carmine, a novel. And my author, M. Spio, joins me from Florida. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. I'm excited to be here. Pleasure to visit with you. I will also refer to you by your first name, Mary. And Mary, this book is a novel of 276 pages. It is an intriguing cover. You have a couple of um, individuals that look like they're having a good day. Uh, tell me what, <laughs> what, what the background of the title, A, a Song for Car- Carmine, where did that come from? What's it about? Um, a Song for Carmine uh, came from the fact that I believe that we've all got that song inside of us. So Carmine Sinclair um, is a young guy who is, you know, on a journey. He's searching. Um, he's searching for things that he really has no um, idea about. And he's also running, running from his past, his um, abusive, um, alcoholic, you know, pastor dad. Um, and so that's where the song comes. He he needs that song that he has inside to express it, but he also needs that to calm and soothe him, to give him what he's looking for. Have you always had a, a curiosity or a desire to be an author? This is a, a rather challenging uh, career sideline to, to become an author and, and get something published. How long have you wanted to be an author? For as long back as I can remember, I've you know, wanted to be an author. Um, I happen to be an engineer, uh, but I, I love words. I love the written word. I have such an acute appreciation of you know, words and storytelling. Uh, so from as far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to. Um, a Song for Carmine took quite a bit of time to write because, you know, I'm working full-time as an engineer and running my own company. But at the same time, just like Carmine, I had this song inside of me that I had to express, which was, you know, he called to me. He called to me in ways that I couldn't, you know, no longer resist. And so I uh, finally wrote, put his words down, and uh, channeled it in the book, A Song for Carmine. Is the book contemporary in its time frame, or is this one that happened in the past? It's, it happens. It's kind of contemporary. It's not in the, that far back of past. It's just happening in the 80s. You know, what's interesting is we're talking about race and love and sex and, you know, money and, you know, all the, all that stuff, mixing it all together. And today we're talking about all those things, right? I've got the cover of the Confederate flag, you know, encircling them. We're talking oh. about taking the flag down tomorrow. Uh-huh. So it's, you know, while it's contemporary, while it's, you know, set in the 80s, it's not that far back, um, yeah, at time. And where is the the story set? I I noticed in your book you mentioned uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Is this a Texas novel, Mm -hmm. or is it somewhere else? No, it's set in the the crux of the story is set in Eaton, Georgia, which is a very small town, you know, population less than 300. Um, uh, Carmine goes to school at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Um, You know, he goes there to escape from his, you know, from his Southern roots, but then he comes right back. Um, and, yeah, he comes right back to Eaton. And sometimes we run from the very things that we need in order to grow, which is what 
he ends up realizing. Your story, would you describe it as a, um, oh, I, I guess for lack of better understanding of the of the novel, would you call it a love story primarily, or is it a, a morality play? I think at the end of the day, it's a love story, right? Love wins. So you've got, you know, he grew up with a dad that was in the Klan, and, and part of this, too, is based on my own experiences in South Carolina. So... He ultimately finds love with a black woman. This is somebody who was raised by a Klansman. He has to put race and all these things in perspective. He has to find himself. You know, he's, his dad is dying. Uh, meanwhile, he's thinking about revenge for all the beatings he got as a child and uh, the things that he couldn't avoid, you know, his past and uh, just all these things that he experienced and witnessed. At the end of the day, love is what you know, allows him to float. So I will consider it a love story. Love story primarily. Now, did you write from, a lot of my authors will journal and keep track of things that happen in their life that may may evoke a, a memory or a storyline. Is that how this came about, or was this one that you just are loaded with creativity and sat down and began to write it? I, I had my initial inspiration, you know, growing up, um, I spent time in South Carolina. I lived next door to, you know, someone who was a, a dear, dear friend of mine, but, you know, his family wanted crosses burned on my lawn, right? Just oh, because I was I black and all this stuff. So that kind of gave me the inspiration because here we were two people loving each other and see, not seeing color, right? I say it's not about the color of your skin, it's about the color of your heart. Right. But we had all these other influences. So, that's where my inspiration started, but the story itself is creativity. When I say Carmine called out to me at night, you know, he did. In so many ways, I heard his story uh, coming to me. I was just flooded with uh, the words and the story, and it was just, you know, a moment of insight and inspiration, and it just poured onto the paper. Mary, how long did it take to, to get this expression out into a, into a form that was readable? The uh, It took me five years. It took me five years to write a song for Carmine because I would write, you know, bits and pieces and then I would, you know, go on with my regular life and then come back to it. So it took five years, which was, uh, to, to, you know, pretty decent amount. It's half a decade to write the book. <laughs> yeah. Is the next uh, I- installment of your writing process going to take that long or are you planning to do a follow-up book? I have a follow-up, which is with Penguin Books. It's called It's Not Rocket Science. That one is a nonfiction. That one took me under a year to write. So mm. it's, we've already sped up. And then I have a trilogy coming up as well, which I hope doesn't take as long. Phenomenal. You have in your mm-hmm. book the elements of a preacher. Uh, you also mention mm-hmm. the uh, biblical context of, of certain items. Uh, how did those items get incorporated, and why did you feel they would carry the story along? I saw that because when you, you know, the first thing that you notice when you're in the South, you see all these little white churches with the crucifixes on. Um, I think that religion and, you know, religion is a huge part of the fabric of the South. And this is, you know, this is a Southern saga at the end of the day. It's a love story. Um, and it's very hard to avoid, you know, that aspect. So, and that's something, it was a conflict that Carmine deals with growing up as a preacher's son. He, even though his father was a preacher, he was an alcoholic preacher, he drank, and yet, you know, he spoke so powerfully of God and he helped people. So you have all these conflicting aspects and attributes that 
he was really grappling with and trying to come to terms with. Um, and that's where the, you know, the, the religious undertone comes from. Who would be your, your ideal reader? Is this a book that's going to appeal to both guys and girls, uh, girls, excuse me, and ladies? Uh, will this appeal to a broad audience, or is this a little more selective in those that will find it intriguing? What I've found is that it's had an appeal to both men and women, and I write from Carmine's perspective. So I've had, you know, surprisingly, I've had a lot of men uh, write to me and, you know, talk to me about how much they could relate to the book. Overwhelmingly, I have more women, you know, I have probably about a 60, 30, uh, 60, you know, 60, 40 in terms of the, the readership and the people I'm hearing from who can are loving the book. So it has quite a wide appeal. Uh, at, at the end of the day, it's a good book. It's a very good book. Um, I, I love the book, not you know simply because I wrote it. I think it's a, it's very well written in terms uh-huh. of the you know the story. So it's it's a good reading, and I'm I'm super excited that it took me five years to write it because the response has been great, and it's come from both men and women. Exciting. The uh, mm-hmm. books when they're written usually have one or two scenes that are pretty exciting. Is there anything that really you enjoyed the most and love to go back and visit? What scene did you create that you think fits that category? There is, you know, (laughs) there are a couple of sex scenes in there that I like because um, while it's steamy and hot and (laughs) exciting, um, it's also very romantic. And then it just comes right back down to, you know, basic instincts. Um, and, and I like that scene because it's kind of funny. It's, um, you know, it's kind of funny, but it's also very layered. Um, and then I like um, another scene where, you know, towards the end of the book, I can't talk too much about it because I don't want to give the end away. Right. Uh, but there is a scene in the end where he's driving, you know, back to work on a Monday morning and life seems to move in slow motion. And, you know, uh, he talks about, her in a way that um, is, is just really majestic, but also it's about him coming full circle. So those are two of the scenes that kind of stick out in my mind. But there are so many scenes, you know, but yeah, those particularly stick out in my mind. There's a scene with them in Port Arthur, you know, in a fishing trip with the parents. Um, a lot of poignant scenes, too, like when he comes home to find his dad dying and he's kind of um, debating on whether to kick him on his last leg or to help him because he keeps going back to all the physical abuse that he dealt with growing up as a young boy. Um, so those are some of the scenes that really stand out in my mind. Uh, besides the entertainment value of uh, A Song for Carmine, is there a moral that maybe you didn't intend to write or didn't set out to, to write, but it came through anyway? What's the moral of the story? Is there one? I think the moral of the story is love wins. You know, it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It's about the color of your heart. And finding that person that you have that connection with and, you know, finding yourself. And, and sometimes we run in circles. We go all over the place. But where we come back to is the beginning. You know, that's where we life is simple. Life is not complicated. And that's the moral of the story. Mary, as you look back on it, were there challenges? This being your first novel, I'm sure there were some times when uh, you just had to get away from it and forget it for a while. Were those challenges difficult for you to overcome, or how did you do so? 
They, they, yeah, there were definitely challenges where you, you kind of hit a block or you've written too much and you kind of want to rein it in a whole lot more. The way I overcame those challenges, I have a really great editor, uh, somebody that I respect tremendously, uh, Christina. Um, and so, you know, without her, uh, pretty much, I think that this book would have taken forever or wouldn't have even happened. So by having a good editor, by having other people that had been there, that I was able to get them to push me at times when I just really wanted to stop. That's what helped me get through, you know, those moments of, uh, you know, not wanting to finish. As a long-term goal, what are your goals as an author, Mary? Um, I, I, I love I love movies as much as I love writing. My goal for Song for Carmine, I could see it, you know, on the big screen, which is where I want to see it. We have the treatment out already. I have a couple Damn. of... Um, mm. you know, of major movie studios looking at it. Um, so that's ultimately where I, I want to see my works. Uh, the same thing with, you know, of course, the nonfiction you know, with Penguin. I, I want to see it out there as well. And then the trilogy that I have coming out. Ultimately, I want to see all my works uh, on the big screen. Uh, congratulations on having the energy to finish this 276 pages, an exciting <laughs> novel titled a, a Song for Carmine, a novel. M. Spio has been my guest, Mary, and uh, Spio is spelled S-P-I-O. Mary, there are those in my audience that are just really uh, wanting to get a copy of this. Where do they find it? They can find it on Amazon.com. It's available in hardback, paperback, as well as on Kindle. So with one click, they can download a song for Carmine on Amazon.com. They also can do a search under your name, I'm sure, and find a, a little bit more uh, background into your life, your history, and the books you are about to release. So again, the author is listed as M initial, last name Spio, S-P-I-O. Uh, Mary, mm-hmm. thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Best of luck in the future. We hope to visit with you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope to be back with uh, the next novel. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, best of luck. For Author House, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Hello and welcome to TogiNet Radio Voices on Air. My name is Deb Han, and it's my pleasure to be with you today with the wonderful Jane Lee. How are you, Jane? 
I'm very good, thanks, Deb. How are you? Fantastic. We've um, we've had a couple of takes. We've had some technology issues with our connection and our interview today. So hopefully this <laughs> yes, time we yeah. can make it work, right? <laughs> I'm positive we will. <laughs> Excellent. It's good to keep life interesting, I think. And and you've certainly um, you certainly know all about interesting lives, I tell you. So, um, <laughs> and that's, yes, that's that I do. <laughs> Uh, interesting being an, I don't know if that's the right word. I think it's a more a courageous life that you've a led. Very, a <laughs> colourful life. <laughs> a colourful life, exactly. So your book, My Nine Lives, A Psychotherapist's Journey from Victim to Survivor, My Nine Lives. Goodness gracious, how did you come up with that as a title? Because you're not a cat, but, you know... <laughs> Oh, this is a really good first question. <laughs> Funny enough, um, my inspiration were my cats. Um, I've always grown up around cats, and every time I look at you know my, my cats, I think, wow, the amount of times that they've done something rash and or just silly, just you know, out of curiosity, how many lives have they actually you know, lost? And then it made me think about my own life and you know, the the traumas and the ups and downs that I had. And I think, you know, I actually died quite a few times and, um, you know, and somehow uh, got myself resurrected again. And I think I'm on my, my ninth life right now. <laughs> oh, I hope you've got more than nine, more than nine lives up your sleeve. <laughs> but, you know, it's well, a good point. So. It, it's a good point you make about the cats because they, they have that wonderful uncanny knack of always landing on their feet, don't they, cats? So, you know. <laughs> Yes, they do. No matter how high you throw them, well, from a you know, not not too high. I mean, I don't think they survive a fall from the Rialto, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's not test that theory. Okay. No. <laughs> so no, back to you. No. Enough of the cats. Back to you. <laughs> so, um, life started for you in Singapore, and as you allude, you're now in Melbourne with the Rialto Tower there. So, um, so <laughs> that's quite a journey from Singapore to Melbourne, and. Um, and it's interesting because it, through the reading of your book, um, 2002 was the was the poignant year, was the your turning point year. So, what was the significance around 2002 and your life journey? Do you think? Well, to begin with, um, I was born in Singapore, and I spent the first 16 or 15 and a half years of my life there. Um, after which I moved to Perth in WA, uh, Western Australia, and I continued my studies there. And um, I actually moved to Melbourne in 2001. So 2002 was sort of the pivotal moment for me because um, I had uprooted myself from a, a, a home and you know a place that I really loved, which was. Um, in Perth and where I lived and my friends there that I've made through the years um, and you know I came to Melbourne where I didn't know anyone and I had two little children to look after and my marriage was failing so everything sort of kind of just collapsed on me mm -hmm. um, plus you know a lifetime of abuse and, and trauma um, that I hadn't dealt with um, I think everything just finally gave way and um, that was when I had a bit of a mental breakdown and and thought to myself, well, this is it. It's either I pick myself up and keep going or I, 
wave the white flag and you know and just give up I'm I'm so glad you didn't wave the white flag I really am I'm glad you chose the onward steps <laughs> Thank you, Deb. Thank you. So am I. So am I. Yeah, and I think your children are as well, just quietly. Yes, um, they are. So, so what was it? I mean, look, honestly, I, I really, um, Jane, I salute your courage because this is a really, uh, it is a very courageous story. It's a deeply personal story to share with the world. So what inspired yeah. you to write your memoir and to share it in this way? Well, I, <laughs> it's a really good question, but there's lots of answers to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think the the first would probably be um, a person who's very, very close to my heart, my Uncle David, mm. um, which if you read the book, um, you know, he, he, he was a big part of my life as I was growing up. He was more of the father figure to me than my own father was. Yeah, that came through um, very clear in your book, very clear. Very significant man in your world. Yes, and all of the happy memories that I have in my childhood, which weren't very many, were all with him. And I thought to myself, you know, what I do with my life is really a tribute to him in a lot of ways. Um, And as, you know, as as my journey sort of unfolded, um, I started to realize that well, I started to see through both my personal and professional lives that there there were a lot of people who had experiences similar to what I I had experienced in terms of sort of trauma and the childhood sexual abuse and you know and I thought to myself, well, if one person can somehow share that little bit of light, that might help other people keep going and. Funnily enough, when I started my practice, it was my clients that um, actually said to me, Jane, you should write a book. Hmm. And, you know, I, I thought to myself, oh, yeah, me write a book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> never never saw that happening. Um, and then one day I sat down seriously and I thought, well, you know what? Because I've had journal, I started off with journal entries. You know, every time I have something um, significant happened in my life. I write write about it. I love writing. Yeah. Um, and and I, it, you know, I reflect upon it. And I looked through my my reflective journals, and I thought, well, there's actually enough here to to write a book. Yeah. So that sort of that's how it got started. And before I knew it, um, my nine lives. You know, came to came to the show. Came to the show, and you know, it's interesting. You talk about writing, and and in in your book, you spoke about the power of journaling throughout your life experience. And there was, you know, you, you made a lot of reference to the journaling, but also poetry. When you the that yeah. creative writing an outlet for you, some, some really yeah. beautiful pieces of poetry that that captured some very significant moments of um, sadness and joy, really. So. Do you, is that an easy thing for you to do, do you find, poetry? Yes, I do. I, I find because when I'm, when I'm actually feeling um, a, a significant sort of emotion, I tend to sort of pinpoint it in, you know, in sort of a few words. So when I first started writing, I wrote a poetry because it, it pretty much summed up exactly how I was feeling without me having to write, you know, 10 pages. And I just 
started getting, you know, the, the, the juices, the brain juices flowing, and it just came naturally. And so that became one of my very, very therapeutic outlets, just writing poetry. Um, and I, I enjoy it. I enjoy trying to make words rhyme. Um, you know, it's just some crazy little quirk of mine, but... <laughs> 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 oh, it's, it's great. It's good to have, you know, fun with words, I suppose. And I, and I do notice that towards the end of the book, you spoke about the possibility of, um, some songwriting or singing or something. Was that, was that right? Is that, is that a, a, another yes. sort of avenue of creative expression for you? <laughs> yes. Um, it's, it's sort of a, a hobby of mine. Um, I suppose during, during the period where I was trying to pay off a certain amount of debt, that my ex-husband had left and I was actually um, offered by uh, several friends to join them in their um, as part of their band so I used to do a few gigs with them on um, on say Friday and Friday nights or Saturday nights um, so I actually really enjoyed singing it you know for me it was another form of therapy and another outlet for me to you know, just just to get all the emotions out. Like for some people, it's it's punching a boxing bag at the gym, but for me, it was singing. Wow! And I found, yeah, and I found singing was another way I could express myself. So I used to sit down and write songs, um, quite similar to poetry. So I do have a few songs that I've written, um, but. I, I'm not as um, musically inclined with the uh, keyboard as uh, you know a lot of songwriters, so that's sort of a bit uh, that, that's going a little bit slower. I think I'll stick to the writing. Okay, well, you never know where these things are going to turn up. You just never, never know. <laughs> okay, so um, I, I I am a little curious. So um, just because one of the things that I I found really inspirational in your book is that you kept going, you know, you just, you kept finding that way forward for yourself. Do you, do you have an inkling or an understanding of what it was that kept you, kept you going and, you know, what got through you those, those dark times? Was it that creative expression or was it something else? What got you through the darkness so that give our listeners some, you know, anyone that might be going through a similar scenario, what would be your key words of advice to keep going? Well, I suppose the key word of advice that uh, you know I have for my readers and for my for the list for the listeners yeah. would be what I tell my clients is that when you're when you're in that deep dark pit and there is absolutely no you can't see any light whatsoever and you're curled up in a little ball and you're just rocking back and forth thinking okay what do I do what do I do you you have two options. You know, really, it's either you pick yourself up and slowly climb towards the light mm. or you can just, you know, stay there and give up. But I say to my clients, always pick yourself up and take one small little step because, you know, it's like that that quote, um, you know, little drops of water make a mighty big ocean. Yes. One small step at a time, and you know, it's just about taking one hour at a time. People say take one day at a time. I think sometimes when you're when you're feeling so down and so low, one day is too much. You have to take one hour at a time, and that's pretty much what I say to my clients. You know, you just take one hour at a time and just focus on that hour, and you know, you've got to want to 
you've got to look at something positive in your life, even if it's just one little positive thing. You know, for me, it was mainly my children. Yeah. I looked at my children and I thought to myself, well, I can't give up because what's going to happen to my children? Um, you know, I don't have any family or any decent family that could look after my children. So I thought there's really no option. They need me, yeah. um, which which at the time made the pressure a lot more. But it also gave me a bit of a kick saying, yes, you know, you've got to do something. And and aside from that, there was also my uncle. And like I said earlier on, you know, I, I, there was that little ray of hope in me that how I lived my life was a tribute to to him. And I I thought to myself, well, all the happiness that he he brought into my life, surely I can't have it end like that. It yeah. was such a dark ending. So it was just through slow and steadiness that I just, you know, sort of, picked myself up and just one day at a time, you know, I went and saw a doctor and started getting, well, that's when I got diagnosed with depression Yeah. Um, and sort of, you know, worked from there through therapy. So you got the help you needed and you focused on like an hour at a time, not necessarily a day at a time, but an hour at a time. So it's an hour. Yeah. And that really, that's such a, the powerful words of advice. They really are. Tell me about um, the. Where can our listeners get a copy of My Nine Lives? Well, they can pretty much order it from any online bookstore or even um, a bookstore. If they physically go into a bookstore and ask them to order the book, um, it's available directly from my publisher. So, pretty much, I know a lot of my readers, they've contacted me through Facebook and they said that they've bought them through Amazon. Um, in terms of price, they said Amazon was probably the best. So mm. I'm, I'm not sure, but I think it, it just depends. Um, they'd have to sort of look around, but it is available online as far as I know. So Amazon is a great starting point. And your own yep. your own page, your Facebook page, now is the Facebook page called My Nine Lives or is it called Jane Lee? Um, it's called Jane Lee. And okay. it's actually got a photo of my book. Perfect. So we'll do a search, yep. Okay, so for our listeners, just so that you, Jane Lee is a, Jane is J-A-N-E and Lee is L-E-I-G-H. So Facebook page Jane Lee and you'll see the My Nine Lives as, as the, the cover picture on that Facebook page and do a, I, I encourage you to have a look on, um, seek it out via Amazon or even go into any fine bookstore and, and request it and, and start to, uh, um, get some information around getting this book out for you, Jane, because, uh, as I said before, I, I commend you. It is, um, and for you, our listeners, this is a, um, it is a really, it is a brutal read because you tell your story openly, <laughs> honestly, um, and, you know, so to, in that, like I say, it can be a really brutal read, but at the same time, it is a inspirational read. It is a read of, of, of hope and possibility as well. And, and I think, as you said before, it's that piece around there is a brighter day. There is a brighter moment. Just please, please look beyond this moment of now. If you're stuck in that darkness, there is light at the end of the tunnel and uh, it's probably closer yeah. than, than you may realise. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, that is, that is pretty much it. Um, you know, at that point in time, you can't see the light because we're so overwhelmed with that darkness. 
but there yeah. always is a small ray of light. And that's what I say to, to everyone who's contacted me, you know, whether they're my clients, even my friends. I say to them, you've always got to focus on that light, which in a lot of ways is the positive. You know, sometimes we tend to, to look at the negatives in our lives and be too um, weighed down by it. But we need to focus on a positive. Even if it's a really small positive, it's, that's what's going to get, get us through. Beautiful. Jane, um, on behalf of our listeners and behalf of people that will have this book land in their hands and it will be the difference in their life experience and the difference in, you know, what they do next, I thank you. And it's been a pleasure spending time with you this afternoon and I'm so glad we finally got to get our technology sorted. So. <laughs> It's a pleasure, Deb. I look forward to hearing you in song at some point in time. We can share that next time. (laughs) I think I'll be more likely to write my second book than to have (laughs) some songs. Either way, I look look forward to sharing your next offering with the world. Jane, thank you for being with us this afternoon. (laughs) You're welcome, Deb. Thank you. And thank you to all the listeners too. Pleasure. Okay, so to our, uh, from on behalf of Todgy uh, Net Radio, uh, Todgy Net Radio Voices on Air, my name is Deb Han and it's been a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Can't Touch This, the memoir of a disillusioned music executive. And joining me from the New York City area is Wayne Edwards. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Thank you, Jay, for having me. I appreciate it. You have a fascinating background, and your book is full of uh, wonderful personal stories plus some uh, cautionary tales. Share with my listeners when you began your journey into the music industry. How old were you? What did you first start doing? Uh, I I guess I was about 25. Uh, My background was I, I went to school to become a journalist, so I was writing and writing for various publications, and and through that writing, through all that freelance writing, I met publicists at various record companies because my focus was on entertainment. And I got a call one day. I was about 25 years old, and got a call one day asking if I'd be interested in interviewing for the newly created position of staff writer for CBS Records Black Music Marketing Division. 
And, you know, for me, it was like a dream come true, especially when they said an expense account came with it. I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it can't get any better than can't this. Better I was writing. I was <laughs> writing about music, and I was in, intimately involved with artists who, you know, all of a sudden I'm calling them at home and meeting with them, and it was fantastic. You uh, you worked with Ashford and Simpson, a, a very well-known uh, group uh, duo in the uh, 80s and 70s. What was your relationship with them, and uh, how did uh, how did that relationship develop? Well, Ashford and Simpson, I, I met, uh, they were obviously, you know, like one of my favorites from a recording standpoint and performing standpoint, uh, but I got a chance to work with them in the uh, mid-80s when I went to Capitol Records as vice president for A&R, Black Music, and they were already signed to the label, uh, but the relationship was a little rocky. Uh, they they weren't having the type of success that they had enjoyed at Warner Brothers, where they were before. And uh, and uh, it was interesting because when I took the position of vice president, uh, my, one of my marching orders was to convince Ashford and Simpson to use an outside producer, which they had never done. So I knew, I said, wow, this is going to be challenging. So So actually... Our first meeting, which was over dinner at a, at a restaurant in Manhattan, I had to break the news to them that we wanted them to consider using an outside producer. So needless to say, you know, these two superstar, legendary songwriters and performing artists uh, now have this young kid sitting in front of them whose track record was really nothing at that point, uh -huh. sitting in front of them telling them how to manage their career moving forward. Wow. It, it did not go exactly well. <laughs> I, can, uh, yeah. I, can, so, I can imagine. So, uh, that so the relationship went from, from rocky to real sour real fast. Now, the 80s was a difficult time for that uh, particular uh, production uh, in uh, part of the industry as well, was it not? Well, the industry was changing. You know, the the music scene was changing. Rap was picking up steam. Uh, you know, and the and those wonderful, legendary love songs that people like Ashton and Simpson were writing were becoming kind of yesterday's news. And it was challenging, you know, for any artist. And and I've worked with so many great artists over the years. And and the one thing you realize it's. Like being an athlete, uh, I look at it as, you know, Father Time catches up with pretty much every artist. There's only but so many Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney's out there. That's true. Right? That's the, true. The, the rest of the artists, you know, they have their one or two hits, and then they fade away. And Ashton and Simpson was somebody who had a string of hits uh, over a long period of time. So they had a well-established, uh, already legendary career. Uh, but, yeah, the 80s was a difficult time. And the economy and the industry was taking a downturn, which uh, so the overall industry was having a tough time. Uh, it was an interesting period to to be involved in the industry. And you mentioned George Clinton and uh, the last big hit that he wrote, and I don't remember it, but uh, it certainly had a catchy title. Uh, Do fries come with that shake? Yeah, do fries go with that shake, <laughs> which uh, came out <laughs> came out. I, I want to say maybe about eighty six. Or so, and and it wasn't a huge hit. It got some airplay. It wasn't a huge hit, but as I like to say, what it's probably best remembered for is that uh, former Miss America Vanessa Williams made her recording debut, her pop recording debut, 
anyway, on on that song of all people, you know, you try to picture Vanessa Williams with George Clinton. It doesn't quite <laughs> add up, but she was actually singing on that song. Incredible. You you have the word disillusioned in your title or in your subtitle. Share with my listeners a little of your journey since leaving that uh, A&R Records. You mentioned in the, your fir- very first chapter, which is an unusual way to start a book, it's, called, uh, it's titled The End, and uh, that was the end of your career with A&R. Is that correct? In, uh, it was 80s? the end of my career, yes, with A&R, and, uh, and I start the book with a conversation that I had with the president at the time of Capitol Records. And, uh, and and he was firing me, hmm. and, uh, and, and in part because I, I hadn't signed that mega hit. I, I had signed some artists who were making inroads and getting their name out there and, and making waves in the industry, but the bottom line at the end of the day is, are, are we selling enough records to keep this company going? Right. And I, I was falling short in that area until I signed MC Hammer and, uh, and his first album for Capital, Let's Get It Started, was on its way to platinum when I had this conversation with the president. So I, I felt like, wow, you know, if you were going to fire me, you should have done this a while ago, because now I'm handing you this success and you're kicking me out the door. And of course, Hammer's next album, Can't Touch This, you know, went through, oh, the, roof through the roof absolutely, and remains one of the biggest selling rap albums of all time. Um, but yeah, but since leaving leaving Capitol Records, I... I followed my heart and my first love, which was writing, and actually became a correspondent for People magazine on the West Coast and had four wonderful years doing that. And then got an offer out of the clear blue to, uh, well, I I worked with Michael Jackson. I guess I shouldn't leave that part out. You should. I I was publicist with Michael Jackson for a year and went to Africa with him for his project Africa in 1992, which was an incredible experience for a whole bunch of reasons. Any incredible inside stories you uh, might want to share that you uh, have in your book about that trip? Well, I, I think obviously the big one, and, and I want people to like really look at the book and get it, is uh, when we were leaving for Africa that, that morning, it was a Monday morning, and it was you know like my first trip with him. I, I'd been with the PR firm, the Lee Salters Company, for all of a month when Lee Salters, who ran the company, says to me, did, did I mention to you that you're, and you know, he's a fast-talking older guy, did I mention right. to you that you're going to Africa with Michael Jackson in a few <laughs> weeks? And I looked at him and I said, no, Lee, you didn't mention that. Oh, yeah, 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 you're going, so, you know, you need to get ready. So so there was this whirlwind of a couple of weeks where I'm getting, you know, my shots and whatever else I needed. But then that Monday morning, we're at the airport, and we had a, you know, they had sectioned off a, a, an area of the airport just for Michael and his plane so that he wouldn't have to walk through the terminal. And uh, as his car is pulling up, and there's a slew of photographers there just waiting to take his picture, as his car is pulling up, one of his longtime confidants, uh, a fellow by the name of Bob Jones, who has since passed, uh, uh, said to me, listen, you know, when when Michael gets out the car, he has a young friend in the car with him who we call the package. And Michael will get out one side, and while the photographers are busy keying in on him and taking pictures, the package will get out of the car on the other side and just very indiscreetly get on the plane. Hmm. Uh, 
so I, I, I had this moment of, wait, wait a minute, am I in the right place? Am I, you know, uh, suddenly my trip, which I was thinking of this fantastic, amazing experience, I'm going to Africa, which I always wanted to do, and I'm going with Michael Jackson, which I never dreamed of doing. Mm. And now I'm dealing with the fact that he's got this young boy on the plane. And uh, it, it, I'll say it turned my stomach, but I, and I'll encourage people to buy the book and see how that story turns out. Yeah, get the inside uh, story. It was. <laughs> excuse me? Yeah, get the inside story. Get it directly from the book, the, the total. Oh, yeah. Yes. You have other uh, insights in your book. What did you find as a whole? Do you feel like your foray into the music industry has been a pleasurable one or one that was more challenging than uh, you anticipated? Uh, I, I think it was both. It, it was pleasurable from the standpoint of, you know, I, I traveled the world and traveled the world on other people's money, which is always a nice way to do it. Absolutely. But I, I traveled the world. I, I had wonderful experiences. I ate in the best restaurants. I, I stayed in the best hotels, and, and literally, with the exception of, of Asia, saw pretty much the rest of the world. Uh, so I, I thought it was an amazing experience, and nothing that I would ever say, you know what, I wish I had done that. It, it changed my life tremendously and helped me get to where I am today in a very different arena. But the challenge was partly my own naivete. I, I, I was a musician when I was younger, and I just had this belief, which was uh, further buoyed by a, a fantastic music teacher that I had in junior high school, that music connects people. Music sort of breaks all sorts of racial barriers, ethnic barriers, religious barriers, all of that. And so I went into the music industry a bit naive, thinking that, wow, you know, uh, now I, I'm in this industry and I can have an impact on sort of reaching across boundaries and changing people's perceptions and stepped into an industry that much to my dismay, just by the very nature of the way it's set up, which is, of course, pop music divisions, which is a euphemism for white, black music divisions. It, it was more segregated than society at large, and, mm. and that to me was very challenging. And not something I expected, although in hindsight I, I should have, but that was my own naivete walking in. So that to me was very disappointing and and uh, and had a lot to do with my disillusionment as a music executive. Any interaction with uh, high-profile people like Marvin Gaye and other uh, black artists in the industry? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I work closely with Marvin Gaye, Gladys Knight, Earth, Wind & Fire, a host of others. Marvin was probably, Marvin Gaye was probably the most complex, fun, frustrating, and, uh, and, and at the end of the day, tragic figure mm. that I worked with. Uh, Marvin, you know, had all the talent in the world. But he was one of these people, I'm convinced, and others have said the same thing, that he was one of these people who felt that to be a true artist, you had to suffer, because out of your suffering came your art your and your emotion and your pain. And uh, a, a terrific guy, but he had a drug habit that just would not go away, and, mm -hmm. and it took him under, and it was sad to see. Uh, there were some funny moments around that, if uh, I, which I'll share one quick example when he finally went on tour this was the sexual healing 
single had exploded, of course, uh, and it was his first single for Columbia Records. And he went on tour, and, and the first uh, the first night, which was in San Diego, the reviews came back horrendous. So my boss, who had signed him, said, you know, you need to go to San Francisco, which was the next day, and see what's going on, because we can't have Marvin out there if he's, you know, sounding terrible. So I fly to San Francisco, and, and it was two shows in one night. I got there for the first show, and he was absolutely amazing. I had never seen him live, and he was brilliant. The band was great. He was in great voice. He was into it. He had the crowd eating out of his hand. And then that show ends. He goes backstage. I follow him to his dressing room to, you know, just see how he's doing and commend him on a great show. And by the time I get to the dressing room, he's already got like a plate of cocaine and he's hitting the lines and, you know, he's getting spaced out. And at one point I said to him, I said, wow, I said, Marvin, that that was a great show. So he said, oh, you, you liked it? And he talked very soft. He said, oh, you liked it? I said, oh, yeah, man. I said, you were really on it. And I'll give you the, the clean version. He said, well, good, because I'm off it now. Bleep him on the late show. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And he went out, and as brilliant as he was in the early show, that's how terrible he was in the late show. Ouch. And he just didn't care. And he just ran through the show like it was something he had to do so he could get back to getting high. And it was sad. Sad story. Absolutely mm-hmm. great read, though. You have uh, 202 pages. Um, Wayne, how long did it take? Did you write from, uh, I don't know, from notes you had accumulated over the years, or was this just from memory? Uh, these were mo- mostly memory. There were some documents that I had uh, put aside from my year with Michael in case anyone wanted to challenge anything. Sure. Uh, but mostly these are stories that I've been telling people over the years, you know, family members and friends and finally said, you know what, I should I should put this on paper. And that's what it is. So so it wasn't the the challenge wasn't so much in writing it. The challenge was in finding the time to write it and, you know, and keeping consistent with it. And uh but I, I'm so glad I was able to do it and I'm so glad it's out there and I encourage people to to read it if you want to get some great insight into the industry, if you want to get a perspective that you won't find in any of the other music industry books out there. Can't touch this. is a terrific read. Wayne, thank you for sharing your insight into the music industry and an area that many of us uh, have a curiosity about, some great, uh, great stories. The title of the book, again, is Can't Touch This. Uh, Author Wayne Edwards has shared his insight into the music industry and his background as a disillusioned music executive. Thank you again, Wayne, for joining me today. Sir, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Well, they can go to authorhouse.com, they can go to amazon.com, they can go to barnesandnoble.com, and it's available. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing your story, and we hope to hear from you in the future and uh, maybe get some additional stories that you haven't shared in this book in uh, any follow-up that might come. Again, the title, Can't Touch This, my guest, Wayne Edwards. Thank you for having me, Jay. My pleasure for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker.